0: Section 88 of The Mysteries of London, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Manilakis. The Mysteries of London, Volume 2 by George W. M. Reynolds. 88. Chapter 223 The Marriage. The happy morning dawned. The weather was mild and beautiful. The sky was of a cloudless azure, and all nature seemed to smile with the gladness of an early spring. Markham rose at seven o'clock, and dressed himself in plain clothes, but upon his breast he wore the star which denoted his princely rank. And never had he appeared so handsome. No, not even when, with a flash of his first triumph upon his cheeks, he had entered the town of Estella, and received the congratulations of the inhabitants when he descended to the breakfast-room he found mr monroe ellen and catherine already assembled they too were attired in a manner which showed that they were not to be omitted from the bridal party at eight o'clock the grand duke's carriage drove up to the door and in a few minutes our hero and his friends were on their way to richmond strange thought ellen to herself that i should have passed my honeymoon of twenty-four hours with him in the same neighborhood whither Richard is now repairing to fetch his bride. The carriage rolled rapidly along, and as the clock struck nine, it dashed up the avenue to the door of the now royal dwelling. Richard and his companions were ushered into the drawing-room, where the Grand Duke and the Duchess, with the aides-de-camp, and a few select guests, were awaiting their arrival. The reception which Mr. Monroe, Ellen, and Catherine experienced at the hands of the royal pair was of a most cordial kind, and proved how favorably our hero had spoken of them. In a short time Isabella made her appearance, attended by her bridesmaids, the two daughters of an English peer. Richard hastened to present his friends to the princess, and the cordiality of the parents underwent no contrast on the part of the daughter. But if she were more courteous, nay kind in her manner to either, that preference was shown towards Ellen. And it struck the young lady that such slight preference was evinced towards her, FOR SHE TURNED A QUICK BUT RAPID GLANCE OF PROFOUND GRATITUDE UPON RICHARD, AS MUCH AS TO SAY, "'Tis you whom I must thank for this.' How lovely did Isabella seem, robed in virgin white, and her cheeks suffused with blushes. There was a charm of ineffable sweetness, a halo of innocence about her, which fascinated the beholder even more than the splendor of her beauty. As she cast down her eyes— and the long, slightly curling black fringes reposed upon her cheeks. There was an air of purest chastity in her appearance, which showed how nearly allied her heart was to the guilelessness of angels. And then her loveliness of person, oh, that was of a nature so ravishing, so enchanting, as to inspire something more than mere admiration, something near resembling a worship. Poets have compared eyes to stars, teeth to ivory, lips to coral, bosoms to snow they have likened symmetry of form to that of sylphs and lightness of step to that of fairies but poor poor indeed are all similitudes which we might call to our aid to convey the idea of the beauty of this charming italian maiden now arrayed in her bridal vestment the ceremony was twofold richard being a protestant and isabella a roman catholic a clergyman of the church of england therefore united them in the first instance by special license at the grand duke's mansion. The bridal party immediately afterwards entered the carriages, which were in readiness, and repaired to the Roman Catholic chapel at Hammersmith, where the hands of the young couple were joined anew according to the ritual of that creed. And now the most exalted of Richard's earthly hopes were attained. The only means by which his happiness could be ensured, and a veil drawn over the sorrows of the past, were accomplished. When he looked back to the period of his first acquaintance with Isabella, remembered how ridiculously insignificant was once the chance that his love for her would ever terminate in aught save disappointment and then followed up all the incidents which had gradually smoothed down the difficulties that arose in his path until the happy moment when he knelt by her side at the altar of god he was lost in astonishment at the inscrutable ways of that providence which had thus brought to a successful issue an aspiration that at first wore the appearance of a wild and delusive dream on the return of the bridal party to the mansion near richmond a splendid banquet was served up and if there were a sentiment of melancholy which stole upon the happiness of any present it was on the part of isabella and her parents at the idea of separation at length the dejeuner is over and isabella retires with her mother and bridesmaids to prepare for her departure the grand duke takes that opportunity to thrust a sealed packet into our hero's hand a few minutes elapse. isabella returns the farewells take place, and the bridegroom conducts his charming bride to the carriage. Mr. Monroe, Ellen, and Catherine follow in a second chariot. It was four o'clock in the afternoon when Richard assisted his lovely young wife to alight at the door of his own mansion, and now Markham place becomes the residence of the prince and princess of Montoni. Vain were to attempt to describe the delight of the old butler when he beheld his master bring home that beauteous, blushing bride— "'and, as he said in the course of the day to Mr. Monroe, "'It was only, sir, a due sense of that comportance, "'which belongs to a man in my situation of authority over the servants, "'that prevented me from collapsing into some of them antics "'that I indulged in when we heard of Master, "'I mean of His Highness' successes, in Castle Chicory, "'and when he came home the day before yesterday. "'But I won't do it, sir. I won't do it. "'Although I don't promise, Mr. Monroe.' he added, with a mysterious whisper, that I shan't go to bed raw the jolly to-night with champagne. It was eleven o'clock that night when Ellen cautiously issued from the back door of the mansion. She passed rapidly through the garden, passed out of the gate, and hastily ascended the hill on whose summit were the two trees. A man was seated on the bench. Ellen approached him, threw her arms around his neck, and embraced him with a tenderness that even appeared to surprise him by its warmth. She placed herself by his side. He drew her towards him, and kissed her almost affectionately. "'You are not happy?' said Ellen, in a plaintive and anxious tone. "'I knew that by the contents of the note which Marion gave me just now, and your manner confirms me in the opinion.' "'I know not how it is,' replied Greenwood, without answering her question in a direct way." "'But you never seemed dear to me, Ellen, until this evening.' "'And am I dear to you now?' she asked, in a tone tremulous with joy. "'You are—you are!' exclaimed Greenwood, speaking nevertheless in a manner which seemed to indicate that he was giving way to a feeling of weakness which he could not conquer, but of which he was ashamed. "'You are dear to me, for my heart appears as if it required something to love, and some one to love me.' "'And do I not love you?' cried Ellen, pressing her lips to his. "'Oh, there was a time when I never thought I could love you, when I only sought you as a husband, because you were the father of my child. But since we have been united in holy bonds, I have learnt to love you, and I do love you, I do love you, in spite of all that has passed.' "'You are a good girl, Ellen,' said Greenwood, upon whose lash a tear stood but he hastily dashed it away, exclaiming, "'This is unlike me. What can be the cause of these emotions, hitherto unknown? Is it that I am envious of his happiness? Is it that I pine for that sweet domesticity which he will now enjoy? Or is it that I am wearied of a world false and hollow-hearted?' "'Alas!' cried Ellen, the tears streaming from her eyes. "'Is the world really false and hollow-hearted?' or have you sought only that sphere which wears the appearance that you deplore look yonder she continued pointing towards the mansion no falsehood no hollow-heartedness are there and why because he who rules in that abode has encouraged every sweet sympathy that renders life agreeable every amenity which inspires confidence and mutual reliance between a number of persons dwelling together the sphere that he has chosen is purified by his own virtues the light of his excellence is reflected from the hearts of all around him. All are good, or strive to be good in his circle, because he himself is good. Where you have moved, ever agitating amidst the selfish crowd, as in troubled waters, none are good, because no one sets a good example. Everything in your world is self. In Richard's world, he sacrifices self unto others. Hence his prosperity, his happiness... "'And hence my adversity, my dissatisfied spirit!' exclaimed Greenwood, impatiently. "'But talk not thus, Ellen, any more. You will drive me mad!' "'Oh, my dear husband, what makes you thus?' cried Ellen, in alarm. "'I never saw you so before. You who were ever so cool—nay, pardon me if I say, so chilling, so calculating, so inaccessible to the tenderest emotions! You are now an altered being!' but god grant you that your heart is touched at last and that you will abandon those paths of selfishness which as you have by this time learnt are not those of permanent prosperity do not be offended with me heaven knows i would not wound your heart for i love you ten thousand times better to-night than ever i did before and solely because you are changed or appear to be oh let me implore you to cast aside your assumed name to throw off all disguise to return to that home where the arms of sincerest affection will be extended to welcome you no no ellen cried greenwood almost furiously my pride will not permit me to do that speak no more in this way or i will quit you immediately i will fulfil my destiny whatever it may be not a day not an hour before the appointed time must he and i meet no broken though my fortunes be they are not irreparable had it not been for the flight of that villain Tomlinson, I should have retrieved them ere now. I must not, however, despair. My credit is still good in certain quarters, and I possess talents for finance and speculation of no mean order.' "'But you will not again embark in any such desperate venture as—' "'As as the forged bills, you would say, Ellen?' added Greenwood, hastily. "'No. Be not alarmed on this head.' I will not sully that name, which he has rendered great. "'Oh, do you not remember,' cried Ellen, as a sudden remembrance shot through her brain, "'that on the morning when our hands were united, you promised that the name which you then gave me should go down to posterity?' "'It will. It will. The prediction is already fulfilled, Ellen,' said Greenwood hastily. "'But not by me,' he added mournfully. "'I know not why I feel so low-spirited to-night. And yet your presence consoles me.' Richard now clasps his lovely bride in his arms, and we are forced to snatch this stolen interview as if we had no right to each other's society. "'And whose fault is that?' asked Ellen, somewhat reproachfully. "'Is it not in your power to put an end to all this mystery?' "'I cannot. I will not,' returned Greenwood, with renewed impetuosity. "'No, let us not touch upon the topic again. My resolves are immovable on that point. If you love me,' "'Urge me not to inflict so deep a wound upon my pride. "'This lowness of spirits will soon pass away. "'I am afraid that envy, or jealousy, rather, "'has in some degree depressed me. "'And yet envy is not the term, "'nor does jealousy express the true nature of my sentiments. "'For in spite of all my faults, "'I have loved him, Ellen, as you well know. "'But it is that I feel disappointed, "'almost disgusted. "'I have as yet toiled for naught.' "'I contrast my position with his, and that makes me mournful. "'Still I am proud of him, Ellen. "'I cannot be otherwise.' "'That is a generous feeling,' said Ellen, again embracing her husband. "'It does me good to hear you express such a sentiment.' "'I scarcely know what I have been saying,' continued Greenwood. "'My mind is chaotic. "'My ideas are confused. "'Let us now separate. "'We will meet again shortly.' And I will tell you of my progress towards the fortune which I am resolved to acquire. Yes, let us meet again soon, said Ellen. But not here, she added, glancing towards the trees. It makes you melancholy. Well, well, I will find another spot for our interviews. Farewell, Ellen, dearest Ellen. Farewell, my dearest husband. They embraced and separated, Ellen retracing her steps towards the mansion and greenwood remaining on the hill on the following morning after breakfast richard conducted his lovely bride over the grounds belonging to the place and when they had inspected the gardens he said i will now lead you to the hilltop beloved isabella where you will behold those memorials of affection between my brother and myself which mark the spot where i hope again to meet him they ascended the eminence they stood between the two trees but scarcely had Richard cast a glance towards the one planted by the hand of Eugene, when he started and dropped Isabella's arm. She threw a look of intense alarm on his countenance, but her fears were immediately succeeded by delight when she beheld the unfeigned joy that was depicted on his features. "'Eugene is alive! He has been hither again! He has revisited this spot!' exclaimed Richard. "'See, Isabella! He has left that indication of his presence!' The princess now observed the inscriptions upon the tree. They stood thus. Eugene, December 25th, 1836 Eugene, May 17th, 1838 Eugene, March 6th, 1841 Eugene was here yesterday, said Richard. Oh, he still thinks of me. He remembers that he has a brother. Doubtless he has heard of my happiness, my prosperity. Perhaps even learnt that yesterday blessed me with your hand, dearest Isabel, and that inscription is a congratulation, a token of his kind wish alike to you and to me. Isabella partook of her husband's joy, and after lingering for some time upon the spot, they retraced their steps to the mansion. The carriage was already at the door. They entered it, and Richard commanded the coachman to drive to Woolwich on their arrival at the wharf where richard had landed only two days previously they found a barge waiting to convey them on board the castle Cicalin steamer the grand duke and grand duchess with their suite received them upon the deck of the vessel. the hour of separation had come alberto and his illustrious spouse were about to return to their native land to ascend a throne the grand duke drew richard aside and said my dear son you remember your promise to repair to Montoni so soon as the time of appointment with your brother shall have passed. "'I shall only be too happy to return, with my beloved Isabella, to your society,' answered Markham. "'My brother will keep his appointment, for yesterday he revisited the spot where that meeting is to take place, and inscribed his name upon the tree that he planted.' "'That is another source of happiness for you, Richard,' said the Grand Duke. AND WELL DO YOU DESERVE ALL THE FELICITY WHICH THIS WORLD CAN GIVE. YOUR SERENE HIGHNESS HAS DONE ALL THAT IS IN MORTAL POWER TO ENSURE THAT FELICITY, EXCLAIMED Markham. YOU HAVE ELEVATED ME TO A RANK ONLY ONE DEGREE INFERIOR TO YOUR OWN. YOU HAVE BESTOWED UPON ME AN INESTIMABLE TREASURE IN THE PERSON OF YOUR DAUGHTER, AND YOU YESTERDAY PLACED IN MY HANDS A DECREE APPOINTING ME AN ANNUAL INCOME OF TWENTY THOUSAND POUNDS FROM THE DUCAL TREASURY your serene highness has been too liberal a fourth part will be more than sufficient for all our wants moreover from certain hints which signor viviani dropped when i was an inmate of his house at panala and subsequently after his arrival at montoni to take the post of minister of finance which i conferred upon him and which appointment has met the approval of your serene highness i am justified in believing that in july eighteen forty three i shall inherit a considerable fortune from our lamented friend Thomas Armstrong. The larger your resources, Richard, the wider will be the sphere of your benevolence, said the Grand Duke. Then, by way of cutting short our hero's remonstrances in respect to the annual revenue, his Serene Highness exclaimed, But time presses. We must now say farewell. We shall not dwell upon the parting scene. Suffice it to say that the grief of the daughter in separating from her parents was tempered by the conviction that she remained behind with an affectionate and well-beloved husband. And the parents sorrowed the less at losing their daughter, because they knew full well that she was united to one possessed of every qualification to ensure her felicity. And now the anchor was weighed, the steam hissed through the waste valves as if impatient of delay, and the young couple descended the ship's side into the barge. The boat was pushed off, and the huge wheels of the steamer began to revolve on their axis, plowing up the deep water. The cannon of the arsenal thundered forth a parting salute in honor of the sovereign and his illustrious spouse, who were returning to their native land from a long exile. The ship returned the compliment with its artillery, as it now sped rapidly along. And the last waving of the Grand Duchess's handkerchief, and the last farewell gesture on the part of the Grand Duke met the eyes of Isabella and Richard during an interval when the wind had swept away the smoke of the cannon. The prince and princess of Montoni landed at the wharf, re-entered their carriage, and were soon on their way back to Markham Place. End of 88